Well, it is great to see you here, and uh, I'm, I'm glad that we get to worship God together, and we get to do that now by opening up His Word. So why don't you gra- grab your Bibles and uh, go with me to the book of Titus, uh, Titus chapter 1. We're actually going to be finishing uh, chapter 1 of Titus uh, tonight, and just to kind of remind you where we've been, Paul sent his boy Titus down to the island of Crete and he charged him with being the kind of the overseer of this this network of of church plants where he really wanted all of these church communities to be shaped by the gospel. And and so this letter that we have from Paul to Titus is is kind of like a playbook for how to uh, uh, establish healthy and growing churches. And what we saw last week was that the, the reason that Paul wrote this letter or or the occasion is right there in verse 5. If you're there, chapter 1, verse 5, he gives us the reason why he's writing this letter. He said, this is why I left you in Crete, basically this, to appoint elders. Okay? We, we, We got some work that needs to be done in these churches and priority number one for you right now, the biggest thing you gotta be worrying about is appointing elders. That's why he's writing. Elders are to uh, oversee and steward and care for the churches. And one of the ways that they do that is found there in verse 9. We looked at this. Uh, uh, verse 9, uh, this is kind of the end of that section on the qualifications of elders. He says the elders are supposed to um, hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. And they're to, to give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. So that would be, verse 9, is really the reason behind the reason for why uh, Paul is writing this letter. This is the thing that kind of motivated him or, or, or compelled him to make sure that, that he's writing this now. Like here's, here's the thing that, that, that's, that's driving Paul to make sure that we get this thing taken care of. And, and the reason he says, verse 10, uh, this is interesting, he says, for or that, that word could be translated like because, or here's why, here's the reason, there's some urgency be- behind this, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. That's what we call false teachers. Okay, and what we're going to see is like Paul is just cranked up to 11 on this issue, and it's because he's dealt with this before. In fact, there's so many times that, that Paul has addressed this in some of his other uh, letters and, and, and times that he's talking with the elders in the church. Like in Acts chapter 20, he's standing on the beach with the elders uh, from the church in Ephesus, and he's warning them about wolves that are going to come in, these false teachers, and then he addressed it in his letter to the Romans and uh, his letter to the uh, Second Corinthians, and, and and the Galatians, and Ephesians, and Colossians, and 1 Timothy, and 2 Timothy. Like, he's, he's constantly talking about this issue. And it's not just Paul. Jesus was the one who warned us about false teachers. And, and, and it's not just Jesus either. Peter picked up on it. And John picked up on it in the New Testament. And Jude talked about it. And the writer of Hebrews talked about it. Like, you can't read the New Testament without feeling the imminent danger of uh, uh, false teaching and, and the severity of the warning against it. It's there. And so I think because it's all over the New Testament, I can't get away from this unsettling awareness that uh, this may be a challenge for us here today. And I don't want to be guilty of what C.S. Lewis calls 
chronological snobbery where just because it's new means it's better. And, and so, be, you know, we're, we're 2,000 years removed from that concept, context, and so, so we're better now. Like, like we've, we're, we're more enlightened, and so we don't really struggle with that. We're not in danger of false teaching creeping into to our churches. But it's kind of haunting to realize that this still exists, and, and, and it's a real threat, and sometimes it's so subtle. Think about this. It could slip in and affect Fairfax Bible Church. So, so the minute you realize the danger and the potential consequences, you might realize why Paul's urgency just kind of cranks up about this kind of an issue. Okay, so I remember when um, Carissa and I bought our first house. We were down in North Carolina while we were there in seminary. We bought this house, and it was a fixer-upper, okay? And it was a lot of work I had to do. One of the things that we had to do as we first got into the house, we had to replace the bathtub, okay? Now, many of you already know this. There is no reason why I should be doing any of these projects. The tools in my house are pink, uh, and that is for a reason, okay? Like, I'm not good at any of these kind of manly projects. And, 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 and so we actually got some help. We were trying to do this bathtub ourselves, quite honestly. We probably had too many hands in the project. I'm, like, really thankful for our friends that came over and helped us. They were trying to get the, the, the water was running, and we finally got the walls in the tub uh, put in, and we, we got the drywall in and got it all buttoned up. It didn't, didn't look great, but it looked done, which was great to me. I was really thankful for that. But then it didn't take long, and uh, one night I walked into the bathroom, and I saw this steady trickle of leaking water coming out of the wall from behind the tub. You know that feeling of, like, who invented indoor plumbing? Like, why do we do this? This is crazy, right? Water is so destructive. Who would put this in their house? Like, I, I real, I'm very thankful for indoor plumbing, but it was one of those moments where I, I, I like, could have, I, I was losing it. There was nothing I really could do in that moment, so I had to just go to bed. I, I really wasn't ready to just rip apart the entire bathroom again uh, and get into it that night, but I remember laying awake at night that, and, 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 and I, Carissa actually remembers this too. We were talking about this this week. I remember laying there saying, our house is literally being destroyed this very moment. Slowly and, and steadily, we can't ignore this. We have to deal with this now or we're going to have some major water damage. You ever been there? So I, I think this is what Paul is experiencing right now. I think he's laying awake at night thinking about these churches on the island of Crete and elsewhere. He's just feeling like, man, like, like he's realizing if we, don't, if we don't fix this, if we don't get the right leaders in place right now that know what they're doing, we're going to have major damage in all of these churches. He's concerned about deception and, and, and false teaching that, that's leading believers astray and what he's helped us understand is that we need elders on the job to make sure that they're calling this out so that churches don't listen to that garbage but they hold on to the gospel so that they're healthy so that they're growing so here's here's the big idea that we're going to see as we jump into this text i want you to note this if if we're going to be 
a community shaped by the gospel. And remember, that's, that's our goal. That's our vision is we're wanting to be a growing, healthy church. And growing churches are communities shaped by the gospel. If that's going to happen, if we're going to be a community shaped by the gospel, then our elders have to call out any message that contradicts the gospel. Can I show that to you? Let's read it. Uh, Titus chapter 1, I'm going to start in verse 9. Uh, we'll we'll kind of get a running start into this. Uh, but I want you to feel the urgency that Paul is bringing here, knowing that major damage is going to happen if we don't take care of this. Verse 9, he says, The elder, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. That's that's Paul's way of saying, like, I didn't say it. Somebody Somebody else said it. But then he jumps in, verse 13, This is true. Like, I'm going to agree with that guy. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and and, and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit, for any good work. That was pleasant. Uh, so, so here's what we're going to see. I, I'm going to pull out of this two warnings, okay? Two warnings that we get. Here's one if you're taking notes. We have to know what is false teaching. You've got to get really clear on this one. Um, we've got to know how to spot this garbage so that we hold on to the gospel. And, and the first thing that, that he wants us to watch out for is men who can't be trusted. And, and he starts to describe who these guys are, and, and, and you can tell who they are by their character. Because verse 10, he, he says they're, they're insubordinate. That word means they're rebellious. Or, or they're, he also calls them deceivers. Like this is kind of just biblical name calling right now. And, and he says these, are, these guys, they, they, they want to try to dupe you and get you to believe things that are not true. You can't trust a guy who's trying to trick you and who lies. And, and then he jumps on in verse 12, and, and he's like, these guys are just like the worst of the worst in their culture. And, and, he, and he uses one of their own heroes. That's uh, probably Epimenides, uh, one of their heroes and, and, and prophets on the island of Crete who apparently said that, that Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And, and, and Paul's using that to just kind of highlight, like, are, are, are these the kind of guys that you're going to follow? Like, that's who you want leading? He says, verse 15, they're, they're defiled. They're not, they're not pure. In verse 16, he says, they, they profess to know God, and, and yet they deny him by their works. So they're hypocrites. They, they say they love God, that, but, but they clearly just love themselves. And they actually hate God by all of their wicked and rebellious actions. They live it up doing whatever they want to do. They're, they're not walking the talk. It's kind of interesting here because these are the guys that think they're uber spiritual in this, and yet it really leads to evil actions is what he's calling this. This is the exact 
opposite of the godly character that we saw that an elder is supposed to uh, display. These are the kind of teachers who just have no interest in, in, in personal holiness and genuinely, and I say that uh, intentionally, genuinely living like Jesus. Okay? And so you can look at their character and, and, and kind of recognize, like, these are not the guys that we want to follow. But you can also look, uh, not just at their character, but they're men who can't be trusted because of their motives. Look at it in verse 11. It says, they're teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. So they're in it for what they get out of it, right? These, are, these guys, they, they just want the, the prominence. They want the, they want the recognition. They want that position there. And they want the perks of ministry. They're trying to line their pockets with this. And obviously in our context, this is, uh, the, the easiest place for us to see this is in uh, prosperity preachers that are preaching a health and wealth gospel that is not a gospel at all. Where, where they're trying to uh, tell you that they're, they're promising really that, that God's going to bless you if you will just obey. If, if, you will, if you'll pray and ask him, he's going to give you all sorts of money. And if you, you, especially if you like buy some of the holy water that I've got from the Jordan River or whatever the case may be, or, or, or if you just name it and claim it, you got a miracle in your mouth, you just need to say it and God is just going to bless you and, and, and give you tons of money and, 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 and heal you of all your diseases and make your life comfortable. And, and these kind of guys are taking advantage of other people and raking in all this money for themselves living large off of lies. But I realize that in, in our circles, we're kind of uh, a little more hip to that. And so I, I think we actually need to watch out, especially for guys that their primary interest is not really loving and shepherding others as much as it's just kind of getting more for themselves and focusing on their own circumstances because that can still happen even if it's not the prosperity preacher. There's still danger here. Uh, we were thinking about uh, the way that God, honestly, like ministry's hard sometimes. I'm not, not going to deny that. And yet God has been so good to us. And, and Chris and I, we've, we've experienced the blessings uh, of, uh, of uh, people giving generously to us. I'm really thankful for that. We've been able to do have, have some incredible opportunities. Some of the, the, the ministry perks of uh, traveling and connecting with friends and other pastors and, and, and pastors' wives. And, 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 and some of you have just been so kind and generous in, in gifts and things like that. It's, just been a, it's, it's been an incredible blessing, and I thank God for that. But I want to make sure that I never start to expect it or think that I deserve it or, or even demand it. Like, you should be giving to me because I'm in the ministry. Maybe some of you, it's been really discouraging to see the, uh, the downfall of one of our prominent evangelical leaders and the reports that have come out recently after his death that describe a man that did not live up to what he was preaching. God help us. You, you see things like that and you just cry out for mercy from the Lord. Help us, Lord. And yet there was, a, there, there was a man who was a pastor or in, in ministry and used his position and his prominence to abuse with women. And, and one of the victims actually said this, that, that apparently he called her his reward for living a life of service to God. 
that he used his, this idea of like service and I'm sacrificing for the Lord to, to prey on and, and hurt other people and take for himself. That feeling that you're feeling right now, like when you, when you hear that, that is the reason why Paul is not pulling any punches when he's calling these guys out. Now that doesn't negate if he's sp- speaking truth. Truth is truth. The gospel is the gospel. We don't follow guys that are living hypocritically, not living according to what they've called. And so Paul, is, he wants us to be aware. He wants to watch out for, for men who can't be trusted. But it's not just the men who can't be trusted. He's also telling us we need to watch out for man-centered teaching. Man-centered teaching is, is a message that contradicts the gospel. Look at it in verse 10. He says these guys are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. So that phrase right there, it really is referring to these Jewish uh, Cretans, okay? They're Jews, but they looked like they had become Christians. They, they, They kind of joined the church, except they were preaching a Jesus plus message. Like, yes, you, you, you got to believe in Jesus, plus you've got to get circumcised, or, or you've got to eat certain foods, or you've got to follow all of these uh, uh, particular rituals, and basically, you've you got to be Jewish, too. Like, like we love Jesus. Like, he's, he, he's cool. He's just not enough. Like, we like Jesus, but, but you need Jesus plus. And they wanted to add to the gospel. In verse 14, these Jewish myths and, and, and commands of people who turn away from the truth. They're going beyond the Bible, beyond the gospel, and they're adding a list of things to do in order to be right with God. Hey, listen up. You don't add anything to Jesus. We've got to make sure that we're doing uh, gospel math. Okay, I hate math. I've told you this before. I have not taken a math course since my junior year in high school, and that makes me so happy. Quite honestly, I have discovered, I don't know about you, I've discovered that there's so much math that is completely unnecessary in my life. I have never had to use algebra formulas. I don't know why they made us do those in school. I'm sure some of you like get your kicks from that. I'm not trying to offend you. I've just never had to use it. I do realize that there's some basic math that you got to know. Right? Like, I gotta know how to count the number of scoops of coffee grinds in the morning, or I'm gonna have a bad day. Or, or if you were to ask me to save you half a piece of chocolate cake, you're like, don't, I, I don't need the whole thing. Can you just save me half a piece of chocolate cake? My uh, inability to conceptualize fractions is probably going to jeopardize our friendship, right? So I get it, like, some basic math you gotta know. Well, way more significant and important than numbers is gospel math. You've got to know this. Let, let, me, let me put it up here. Jesus plus anything equals zero gospel. It's not a gospel. You've lost it. If we're adding anything to Jesus, we don't have a gospel. If anyone comes to you and they're saying, like, listen, listen, in, in order to be right with God, to, to, to be in a right standing, have a good relationship with God. In order to be right with God, you need Jesus plus you need to go to church. I love that you come to church. I want you to come to church. 
but we don't add to Jesus, right? You, you need Jesus plus you've got to get baptized. Like you can't, get, you can't be saved unless you've actually gone under the water. Or, or you need to give a certain percentage of your budget to the church. Give it to the Lord. Or, or, or you need to read deep theological books. Or, or you've got to uh, listen to the right podcasts or the right preachers. Or, or, or you've got to spend hours in prayer before the sun comes up. And you can't miss a, a morning of, of, of reading your Bible. And, and, and you have to hold certain convictions about the consumption of alcohol. And you, you have to have healthy and, and pure relationships. Can't mess up. And, and you can't have a struggle with pornography. And, and, and you, you can't have any kind of homosexuality sexual desires. I can't have that, right? Even though all of us are broken sexually. But we can't even struggle with that. And, and, and you've got to be politically active on, on particular issues of morality. And you've got to align with a certain party. You've got to watch Christian movies or whatever it is they're saying. Listen, like not all of these things are bad. Not all of them. Some of them we would even encourage you towards. But your salvation and your standing before God are not based on any of them. If anybody adds them to Jesus as necessary for salvation, it's bad gospel math. It's called false teaching. This is not the gospel. We are saved by Jesus, not Jesus plus anything. I mean, just think about it. Like the, the, the gospel is good news. And so a message of having to do anything to earn or, or to secure our own standing before God, like i got to make God happy with me and i got to do these things and so that I'll have his favor, that's not good news for any of us. That's, there's zero gospel there and there's zero chance that that's going to happen. And so adding to Jesus is disastrous. In fact, uh, Brian Chappell said it this way, that, that there are only two possible results from such an error. Spiritual pride or personal despair. Because watch what happens. When we begin to think that my standing before God is based on what I do, then I may be given to that pride where, where I, I think my value is tied to what I can do, and I'm pretty good at keeping the list of do's and don'ts, and so then I start feeling good about myself and about how I'm doing lately and about my performance and my accomplishments. And then I start playing the comparison game. And I start looking around and I'm like, well, I'm better than that dude. Definitely better than her. I'm better than all of them. And then we start to look down on others as if we're, we're better, we're more spiritual because you know, we, we've got more disciplines or, or we got more of our life in order and, and, and we begin to be full of ourselves and self-righteousness and really trusting in ourselves. It's, it's pride. Or we'll give in to despair, right? Because, like, I want to be better, and I, and I wish I could, but because my value is, is tied to what I can do, all of my failures just accentuate my inadequacies. And I realize, like, I'm never going to be able to, I'm never going to live up. And so then I feel worthless. I feel hopeless. Like, what's the, even, what's the point? Like, what, what, why does it even matter if I give in to things that I know are not right, things that are going to be destructive? Jesus plus anything is not Jesus-centered. It's man-centered. It's 
self-centered because it's focused on what I have to do or what I can do. Now, let me be clear here. We do pursue Jesus and, and pursue holiness and follow him with all of our strength and with all of our effort. We get after it. But it's because we love him, not because we're trying to earn his attention or earn his favor. We don't have to do that. So, so let's be clear. Don't think that this means that if you ever hear somebody uh, telling you that you should do something, that you're like, false teaching, get away from me. Like, no, no. Like, if, if, if they are insisting that you have to do something in order to uh, gain your standing and, and your security with God, or as if the gospel is just you know, self-improvement and self-actualization, and, and, and you've got the power within you, and, and you can do it, and you'll feel better about yourself when you do it, that message contradicts the gospel. The gospel is good news because Jesus did what you could never do. That he came and lived a perfect, sinless, holy life. And he died the death that you deserve. So that instead you could be forgiven and you could be given eternal life. And in Christ you have God's favor and you, can, you don't have to earn it and you can never lose it. How awesome is that? That it doesn't matter what I'm going to do this week and it doesn't matter what I did last week. God's not going to change his mind about me. That in Christ, and only because of Christ, he looks at you and he declares, you are righteous. You're righteous. And that doesn't mean that you're getting a, a, a gold star because you went a whole month without watching pornography. Or, or you went all week and you read your Bible there. It has nothing to do with what you've done. It's what he has done. That he actually gives you Jesus' righteousness. So that when he looks at you now, he says, you are righteous. It kind of flips the attention, doesn't it? Realize the gospel is not about us. The gospel is about him. We lose ourselves completely as we see and gaze at the glory and the exaltation of Jesus Christ. That he is awesome in his righteousness and his holiness and his love and his grace and his mercy. And we worship him. But Paul, is, is, he knew that these, this false teaching is, is really subtly deceptive because it, it sounds right. It's emphasizing morality, like doing good things. Like, how could that be wrong? But it really just plays to our inflated view of ourself and, and what I think that I can do. And, and the deeper problem, I think, is that it's so natural for us to just focus there. It's like reflex. We just run to that. It's what we can do. And we reject and start to replace Jesus because we think we can do it our way. But the gospel is Jesus. Nothing else. Don't add to it. Don't replace him with anything else. It's all about him. But the second warning then he gives us is this. If you're taking notes, note this. We also have to know how to deal with false teachers. Okay? What do we do when we see it? What do we do when we hear it? How do we respond? What's our responsibility? Well, he's given us elders, but the elders have a responsibility here. Look at verse 11. I love this. They must be silenced. 
Well, they can't keep these lies like spreading all around. We've got to shut them up because if, if we don't, he says they're, they're upsetting whole families. The horrible consequences of, of, of false doctrine is not that it's just taken out individuals. Man, it's taken out entire families. Like we lost that family in our small group. That family that was sitting right next to it, like we, we, we lost them. But if, if, if these lies and false teachers don't get silenced, it's going to make a mess of the households within the family of God. And, and one spiritual family, one, the, the, the health of that family affects the whole church family. So you can see why Paul was so uh, uh, emphasizing and so concerned that these elders back in verse 6, they need to be setting an example of what a godly family looks like. So, so the thing that's keeping Paul up at night as, he, as he's kind of like laying there awake knowing like, man, there's major damage that could be happening. Now he's thinking of people that are there. He's thinking of families. So what do we do? How do you, how do you actually do it? You're supposed to silence them. What, how do you silence false teachers that are messing up the church family? Well, it's there in verse 13. Look at verse 13. He says, therefore, rebuke them sharply. Paul's not pulling any punches, is he? This, this isn't like, hey, you know, just, just ask them nicely to raise their hand. And, and wait their turn, and just don't call on them. You know, like, that's not what he says. He, he's, this is super direct, super confrontational. Like, you get in their grill, and you tell them to be quiet. Like, when you see bad gospel math, you got to call that stuff out. Now, I, I, I have friends, and I'm sure you do, uh, that are just like incredible at math and numbers, that they're just kind of like human calculators. You know, these kind of people that like, I don't even know how they can pull that stuff out. They look at something, they just see it and name. We need elders in the church who are like human gospel calculators, okay? They're trained to recognize it right away. They can do the math. They can cross it out like, nope, that doesn't add up. Nope, uh, that's the wrong answer. No, 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 don't add anything to Jesus. The elders are responsible for this. God has appointed these elders in the church to make sure that this garbage gets called out because he cares about his people. So he says, rebuke them. That's, that's not the gospel. Be quiet. Stop spreading these lies and keep bringing the church back to the good news that it is only through Jesus. Only Jesus saves. But I want you to notice something. Look again at verse 13. Notice, notice the outcome that Paul is hoping for when elders do this. When, when they rebuke false teachers sharply, verse 13 says, so that, here's the reason, there's a, there's a purpose. Here's what I want to see. So that they may be sound in the faith. It, it doesn't sound like um, Paul hates them and wants to see them suffer, does it? No, he, he sounds like he wants them to be spiritually healthy too. It, it's important to be direct. It's important to be stern when you're dealing with false teachers. But I, I love Dr. Danny Aiken said it this way. We cut to cure. The, 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 we're, we're not slashing a sword like we're in battle. We're using like a scalpel for surgery. And the purpose is for healing. The goal is not to mock and destroy people, but to silence lies. I'm going to be honest with you. This one hits a little close to home for me. Because there is a danger in our circles especially of this tribalism where we just start to hate on 
certain pastors, certain communicators, and we make fun of them. And we, we, Do we have the heart that Paul had for those that he would consider his enemies? See, the reality is they're not our ultimate enemy. Our spiritual enemy, our real enemy, is what God calls the father of lies. It's kind of the wake-up call. Like this is What we're really dealing with is spiritual warfare here. And so we, we are actually called to love and to pray for our enemies, even these guys that may be preaching a false gospel. Now, now when we hear that, when, when they begin to deceive and lead our brothers and sisters astray, we don't mess around with that. We, we silence lies. We rebuke them. But we do it in the hopes that they will repent and be sound in faith too. We share the gospel. We help people understand what it really means. See, the vision that we have is being a, a growing church that is being shaped by the gospel. And so that's why he said, verse 9, the way we make sure we do this is, is we have these elders that are giving instruction in sound doctrine and also who rebuke those who contradict it. And so one of the ways that we do this as a church is by regularly taking communion together. I'd like to transition to that. If you didn't get the communion elements in the back, they're out on the table. I'd love for you to have uh, that with you. Uh, but, but we remember when we take communion, we're remembering what Jesus has done, and we're trusting in the finished uh, work of Christ on the cross, that he, uh, his body was broken and his blood was, was poured out for us. In fact, I was thinking about this this morning. My, well, we just sang that song, The Lion and the Lamb, and uh, this morning... My little man, Javen, was singing that song on repeat, like major repeat. And um, the, the line just kept coming up, like, who can stop the Lord Almighty? Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Who can stop the Lord? It was awesome to hear him sing. But then eventually, I don't know why, uh, the lyrics kind of morphed in his mind to who can kill the Lord Almighty, like a typical boy, right? I'm like, great, that's awesome. And I was about to stop him. I was about to stop him because, like, who can ki- no one can kill the Lord Almighty. They did. And it's because he let them. That's the reason that we can be forgiven. It's because he humbled himself to this. And he gave his body and he poured out his blood so that you could stop striving. You could stop trying to earn it wondering if it's ever going to be possible, hoping but not really knowing that you could have the confidence that you belong to him, that you are forgiven, and the hope of eternal life because it's done. Your sin has been paid for. Praise God.